My name is Richard Morellis, and I want to welcome you to the Prison Post. This is your podcast for conversations surrounding the need to reform prisons from the perspective of formerly incarcerated people, community members, and leaders in the restorative justice movement. The Prison Post will feature an episode every Wednesday with people who are in the fight to restore lives and heal communities. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. To accept this call, say or dial 5 now. Thank you for using Global Tail Link. Our guest today is calling from a California prison system. His name is Charles Carpenter. Charles was raised in Los Angeles, California, and moved to Pomona in 1978. He is the author of the autobiography titled Handcuffed. Charles is a former gang member from the Trey 57 Crips. Today, he is a man of God who aspires to live his life in service to others. Charles was sentenced to 37 years to life at the age of 32. He's now been incarcerated for 17 years and has been at Soledad for four years and three months. He's 49 years old and has an earliest release date of August 2029. That is his earliest release date because at that time, he would have 25 years in and be 60 years old. This is an elderly parole law that is in effect in California. Proposition 57 also deducted four years off of his sentence. Charles is a completely new man today. He shares his personal stories in the four books that he's published. He exudes gratitude at every opportunity he has given to give back. Charles, good morning. Thank you, Richard. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a blessing to have you here. I believe that your story will have a great impact on our subscribers, our listeners, and we're grateful to have you on our show today. I want you to know that our audience is largely made up of those who have a loved one who is incarcerated or who have a heart for the incarcerated and want to see reform happen for men like you in the future. So, Charles, would you be willing to take us back and tell us a little bit about your childhood and upbringing? You know, how did life start for you? Well, my childhood was my early years were filled with witnessing domestic violence in the home. I witnessed my father who was then an alcoholic, an abusive alcoholic. I witnessed him strike my mother in front of my brother and myself. And for for a young kid to witness that, I was devastated. This had a profound effect on me. As a result of seeing that, I developed low self-esteem. And I developed an intense hatred towards my father, and which... My hatred towards my father uh, subconsciously developed into a hatred towards authority figures. So after witnessing that uh, at five years old in 1975 and then another time in 1977, uh, my mother, she made arrangements to get away from my father. So she took my brother and I out of the home. At that time, we were living in Linwood, California, on a street called Woodlawn. We left the home, and my mother was staying in various cities throughout L.A. County. We stayed in Compton, Long Beach, different cities, just trying to get away from my father. So from a young age, my life was filled with a lot of, uh, a lot of trauma, a lot of, a lot of turmoil, a lot of dysfunction in the home. And my mother did the best that she could to raise two young boys. She was on welfare at the time, and... She was trying to make ends meet by uh, working at uh, odd jobs and uh, doing hair. And so she saved up enough money to move us to Pomona, California from doing hair. She had a shop in, uh, in Southgate. We, we moved to Pomona, California. 
And uh, from there, I was involved in juvenile delinquent activities. I lived in a single parent household. I didn't have a strong role, male role model, you know, because my father was absent. So the guys in my, in my neighborhood in Pomona would happen to be gang members. So these young individuals, they were teenagers at the time. I looked up to them. They were selling drugs. Uh, I thought that they, they were cool, you know, driving low riders. I wanted to be just like them. So at nine years old, I became associated with a, a group of gang members known as Trey Five Seven Crips. So, what you said at nine years old? At nine years old, I, be, I, I started associating with gang members at nine years old. Wow. And, uh, yeah. So, um, my. During school, uh, I was never a, a, a dumb kid. I mean, I, I, I consider myself to be fairly intelligent, but I didn't gravitate towards education because the group of people that I hung around with, education was not a priority. In fact, you know, in the gang culture at that time, people that were educated were viewed as squares. Right. So... Being that I wanted to fit in with this group, I put education on the back burner just to fit in, to be accepted. Because I didn't want to, I didn't want to appear that I was a square. I wanted to be a part of the group. I wanted to be a part of the in crowd. So along the way of uh, me trying to be accepted by this group, uh, I started participating in uh, different things that I thought were. Uh, most of my notoriety within the group. So I started participating in different crimes and started experimenting with marijuana, drinking. And uh, at 12, about how old were you? About how old were you when you began using marijuana or drinking? I was about nine years old when I, when I smoked some marijuana, nine or 10 years old. And I started drinking alcohol. I had some older cousins they were teenagers, and I was about 10. They were, you know, they would drink beer and stuff, and I'd be right along with them, so I would experiment with the beer and get drunk to the point where, you know, the room started, started spinning and everything, and so that was the beginning stages of uh, what would later prove to be my addiction with drugs and alcohol. So when you think about, a lot of people think about nine years, nine years old, they're thinking about elementary school. They're thinking about playing with toys, playing in the parks. Through these podcast interviews, I'm seeing sort of, um, I think in the comics, they call it the bizarro world, uh, where things are all backwards, where to get an education is you're considered a square, where right. to drink and do drugs at nine years old is, considered commendable and acceptable. Right. So what are your thoughts on that? I mean, looking back on it now, I definitely know for a fact that it was a work belief system. Like you mentioned, the social norms that were viewed as right in this culture and the gang culture are completely backwards to the normal law-abiding citizen. 
It's just like the social norms of prison. You know, a lot of times the social norms in, in these prisons are completely backwards. And in free society, they don't work. In fact, in, if you would apply some of these things that we view as normal in here, in a free society, we'd probably be placed in handcuffs. <laughs> right. Or placed placed in a mental facility. <laughs> so, right. But yeah, it was definitely a warped belief system. And, you know, now I know better. Again, you know, I was I was trying so hard to fit in. I was trying so hard to find my place. It just happened. It just so happened that I was looking in the wrong place for acceptance. What was the type of acceptance that you wanted, and and where do you feel that there was that void? I mean, if you're looking for something, generally, I would assume that there's a feeling of loss. There's a feeling of something not being there. You know, if I'm looking for my bike, it's because I don't know where it is. So when does it, now looking back, you know, with some insight, when did you begin looking for that acceptance? Well, as I mentioned, you know, when, after witnessing that domestic abuse in the home, it, it had a devastating effect on me, you know. Uh, so the traditional family unit was broke up. I didn't grow up in a well-adjusted home. I don't know what that looks like. So from a young age, I experienced dysfunction and it was traumatizing. Now I don't have, I don't have a strong male role model to look up to. Right. My father figure is absent from the home. So who do I turn to, to, to fill that void? So I turned to people that were in my community that happened to be black males the bad part is that they were participating in negative activity. Right. In my mind, these were the only role models that I choose to gravitate to. And I wanted to aspire to be like them. And the irony is that they were just as dysfunctional as I was. You know, a lot of these guys that I was looking up to, they came from broken homes as well. They witnessed domestic abuse as well. So it's sort of like the blind leading the blind. <laughs> yeah, that's what it was. Everybody's dysfunctional. Everybody's dysfunctional. And then we're trying to, you know, we got these older guys that are trying to tell this younger guy that this is the way to go. And he's dysfunctional himself. And so on and so forth. And the cycle continues. Right. It's just a big cycle of dysfunction. And do you remember a time when you wanted a male role model around, but he wasn't. Do you remember asking questions about like, where's my father at, you know, or, or wanting him to come back or at what age do you begin wanting a male role model? I can relate to you because the only male role model that I ever knew was my grandfather. And uh, to this day, he's my mentor. And, but back then my mom marries a man when I'm 10 and a half years old. And he basically cuts off that relationship with me and my grandfather. And he wasn't even a 1% of the man that my grandfather was. And so I felt like that, 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 that male role model was stolen from me. That's when I can map back that my, that my resentment came in where I started looking at male role models in all the wrong places. When did you realize that that positive male role model void was, was not there? Well, I realized it because... I think it was more of a subconscious issue. 
Yeah. And I realized that, that there was something, there was something missing. And it was just, I really couldn't put my, my finger on what was missing in my life. Right. I knew that as a result of me witnessing that domestic abuse, I was, I was angry. I had a lot of unresolved emotional issues that were, that were stuffed deep down inside of me. And I had a, a ton of anger. And I was like a walking time bomb ready to explode at any moment, you know, and one of the things that that triggered my anger as I was growing up was me coming in contact with what I viewed as authority figures. Um, and I had a few incidents related to uh, assaulting authority figures uh, throughout my life as I was growing up. Yeah, what were your thoughts about authority figures back then? I didn't like authority figures because in my mind... <laughs> That's probably an understatement, right? Right. So in my mind, authority figures subconsciously represented my father, my unresolved issues with my father. Being that I had an intense hatred towards my father at that time... Every authority figure, well, not every authority figure, but a, a lot of authority figures that I came in contact with, it wasn't a, a good dynamic, I will say. Right. <laughs> what would you say? I mean, uh, what's the raw version? I mean, would you rebel? Would you, you know, cuss them out? I mean, what were your, what were your thoughts about them? Like, uh, you ain't going to tell me nothing, never, no time. So, yeah. Right. There was a lot of rebellion and... Uh, on two occasions, I actually assaulted some staff at, at, a, at a couple of facilities that I was at when, when I was a juvenile. So as a juvenile, what, at, at what age do you start going to these facilities? So you, you begin hanging out with the gang members, smoking a little weed, drinking. How does that lead to get, getting locked up in these facilities? Okay, so during the times that I was associated, that I became associated with with Trey Five Seven, the Crips in Pomona, the the culture at that time was just trying to be cool, trying to commit crimes. In my mind, I thought that that was a segue to gain notoriety within the within the group, because I, you know, the guys that are around me, they're they're selling drugs, they're breaking in people's houses, and in my mind, these are these are the cool guys. So I, I want to be just like the cool guys. <laughs> right. So one day, uh, uh, my brother and I, we were coming home from across town, and uh, this guy was riding by on his bike. And uh, I had a box cutter in my pocket. So I was tired of walking. We, we still had a, quite a, a ways to go before we could reach our home. So I pulled a box cutter out, stopped the guy, pulled a box cutter out, and told him to get off the bike. And my brother and I, we rolled home. And little did I know, the guy that I robbed the bike from, little did I know, he went to the same school that I went to. So the next morning when I went to school, I was arrested and charged with robbery. And I was taken to... I was transported by the Pomona Police Department to Los, Los Padrinos Juvenile Hall, which is located in Downey, California. And I was processed into Juvenile Hall. And how old were you at the time? 12 years old. 
Uh, like seventh grade, sixth grade, seventh grade. Yeah, I was in seventh grade. Yeah, just just starting seventh grade. So at at twelve years old, I was about to turn thirteen. I was sitting in in this lonely, isolated cell, not realizing, you know, the impact that I had on that young kid who just got his his bike taken at knife point, not, not even caring the psychological trauma that I put him through. And as a young kid, I'm sitting in this lonely room, no toilet in the room. The only thing it had in that room was the bed, a, a, a plastic mattress, and, and my bedding, and a sink. I had to use the bathroom. I had to, you know, use the restroom in in the sink. And if I had to do other things, I had to knock on the door and ask the ask the counselors to open the door so that I I can go use the toilet. So it was a it was quite an experience. And the funny thing is that while I was there, I wasn't the only young kid there. I was in a, I was in a unit that was uh, specifically for young kids. It was called XY, and uh, right. some of these kids were nine years old. Uh, one guy in particular, he was from Bounty Hunter in in Watts. He was nine years old, and he was in there for murder. Oh my God! So these are some of the things that were that were taking place. During that time, in that climate, we're talking about the Crip and Blood era. We're talking about the formation, the formative years of the Crip and Blood era. Late 70s, early 80s. And so a lot of things, a lot of social things were taking place within these urban areas. And a lot of things, a lot of our belief systems were completely warped. Right. What were your thoughts about going into that juvenile system and then being in a, a unit, you call it the XY unit, where you got nine year olds, ten year olds, eleven year olds, twelve year olds, you being a twelve year old, probably one of the older ones from in that unit. And uh what were your thoughts back then? And then what are your thoughts about units like that today? Well, my thought back then because the mindset that I had was okay, I see I seen the older homies go in and out of jail. I saw pictures of the California Youth Authority before I even stepped foot in the California Youth Authority. I saw pictures of the older so-called homies back then in the California Youth Authority holding up blue rags, uh, throwing up gang signs, taking group pictures. So in my mind, this was cool. Right. This is where I want to be. So my thoughts back then, when I went to XY, initially I was depressed. Uh, you know, I was homesick. This was, this was my first time being away from my family, my mom, and I was homesick. But I gradually became accustomed to that lifestyle. I started meeting different gang members from different parts of Los Angeles. Uh, one person in particular, I, I still remember this like it was yesterday. His name was Day Day. He was from Q102 East Coast a faction of the Crips in, in uh, South Central. When I saw him, he had a jerry curl and he had two teardrops on his eye. 
for uh, representing the, the neighborhood that he was from, Q102. And he was 12 years old. And he was wearing, at the time, in Los Padrinos, they used to dress us in a, a, a gray sweatshirt and some tan khakis. And we were allowed to wear our personal shoes. Most people wore Converse. So he had on a pair of white Converse. And I thought that, in my mind, I thought that just reinforced what I thought was extremely cool. Because for a gang member to be in one of these facilities, it was sort of, it was sort of like a, a status symbol. As crazy as it sounds, it was a status symbol. Right. And everyone was aspiring. If you were a juvenile, you were aspiring to go through the ranks and, and files of the juvenile justice system all the way to the California Youth Authority. And after you got to the California Youth Authority, you aspired to graduate to the big house, to the pen, in order to you know get some stripes, if you will, or to get you know gain some uh, respect. And it was completely crazy. And that's, that was my mindset. So from Los Padrinos, I was, uh, I was sentenced by the courts to go to a, a community-based facility. It was called placement. And um, once I went to that placement, um, my younger brother was there as well. So uh, we were both there, but we were on separate units. And I, I got into it with this counselor one day. This is in placement still at the age of 12, uh, seventh grade, or this is another time? No, oh, no, from from, uh, from juvenile hall, I had to wait in juvenile hall. Yeah, this was, this, this was still the same offense, but I was sentenced by the court to go to placement. So I had to wait, go through the process of uh, waiting in juvenile hall. I went from Los Padrinos uh, which is in Downey, and then I went to uh, East Lake facility, which was called Central, which was uh, in East Los Angeles. And I, from there, I had to go to Stillmore Juvenile Hall, which was in San Fernando Valley. And from San Fernando Valley, I was picked up by one of the representatives from, from the placement, from the community-based placement. And I was, uh, I was ordered to stay there. And uh, during the time that I was there, I got into it with one of the counselors because of the unresolved anger that I had inside of me. Right. It was sort of like a merit ladder system. We had to earn points in order to go home on the weekend. Right. And one particular time, the counselor was doing the merit ladder chart. Basically, long story short, he was he was not going to allow me to go home for the weekend because I don't know what I did, but I didn't. I didn't receive enough points to go home. So I got mad as he was doing the charting on the board. I went to the broom closet, grabbed the broom, and I, when I returned, I hit him in the eye with a broom. And uh, from there, you know, I, I was arrested the next day, and I was sent back to court. I was, I was taken to juvenile hall, sent back to court, and from there, they ordered me to do a long-term camp program. So you're already in placement, which is a, which is like a, where you go after being sentenced in juvenile hall. Is that correct? Right. Yes. And then you hit him in the eye with a broom, and then they come and arrest you while you're already incarcerated. Absolutely. And there's a new charge. 
Yeah, they came and arrested me, and then they, I had a new charge. I had to go back to court, and I was charged with assault. I was ordered to do a long-term camp program. So in June 3rd, 1983, I, I went to a, a juvenile detention facility called Camp Scott. At the pause right there, Camp Scott. Yeah, okay. 13. All right, well, I'll, I'll call you back. Call, say, or dial 5 now. Thank you for using Global Tel Link. Welcome back, Charles. Thank you. So we're at uh, Camp Scott, 13 years old, so you don't leave placement. What, what uh, Another thing that, that boggled my mind, which is probably not done today, was you actually had the opportunity to leave for the weekend back then, and I don't think they do that today, but I'm not quite sure. Well, placements are community-based. They're basically like homes in the community. So okay. It was like when you move up the, the hierarchy of punishment, it was probably like the lowest level of punishment that you can get. Uh, okay. Sort of probation. So, you know, they were giving me the opportunity to change. You know, I was in a community-based home with, you know, other kids and stuff. So it wasn't that bad. You know, I just made it worse. Right. So you go to Camp Scott at age 13 for being in charge with assault. I mean, what was your what was your sentence there? They said that I would have to do a nine-month long-term camp program. Where they, the way they termed it, they said well, I would have to do a long-term camp program. So I didn't know how long that would be. I found out once I got to Camp Scott that it, it, I would have to do at least 36 weeks with nine months. But I ended up doing seven months. What was that like? Camp Scott was, uh, it was horrible because this was my first time being in like a real structured type of uh environment around it was a dorm setting and um i was uh, i was around a bunch of uh other young men like myself and the majority of them were black gang members right uh, uh, they were from different parts of los angeles you know compton wise uh east coast hoovers and uh, you know the whole spectrum of gang members at that time it was it was new for me. It was a new experience for me, and I was exposed to a lot of different people from a lot of different areas that I, I probably wouldn't have had, wouldn't have been uh, exposed to. Um, Camp Scott was uh, it was sort of like it was sort of like a military type setting. Uh, you had the counselors that would try to instill discipline in us, and they would emphasize education. This one counselor in particular, his name was Mr. Washington. I, I feared that man, and most most of the other residents at that time, they hated to see Mr. Washington coming. They hated when he came on duty because <laughs> he was he was tough. Yeah. They said uh, the rumor was he was a former crook that changed his life uh, and became a counselor. So he knew all the ins and outs about the gang life and stuff. So he was his whole agenda was to make a difference, was to stop these young kids from participating in that negative behavior before it got out of hand and they ended up 
like I ended up today with a life sentence. Um, he was real big on uh, emphasizing uh, the importance of education. In fact, every almost every time that he would pick us up from the school area because he would have to escort us from the school area back to the dormitories. And he would be there waiting in the school area as we filed out and lined up. And one of his things was he would pick a person, a random person out of the group and tell them to step out in front of everyone. And he would ask him, what did you learn in school today? Well, he did that to me. <laughs> and the first time he asked me what I learned in school today, it was embarrassing. I was in front of everybody. And my answer was I didn't learn anything. You know, because I just I wasted a whole day, and uh, he told me to take it up front to uh, go to the office, and he said that he was going to write me up for not learning anything. Of course, he didn't write me up. He had me sit up in front of the office uh, until the end of his shift, and then you know he allowed me to go back into the dormitory. But that situation made me realize the importance of learning something every day. So the next time he called me out, I could still remember him clear, clearly in my mind. He said, Carpenter, step out front. He had that deep voice. He was about 6'2". 220 pounds with a, you know, he had an athletic build. He's a, a football player. And uh, he would, he would ask me, he said, tell everybody what you learned in school today. And then I, I remember that I, I had a, I had a speech for him. I had, you know, I learned, I read up on John Johnson, who was the, the uh, founder of Ebony Magazine. And I recited everything that I learned about John Johnson. And from that point on, I made it a point to learn something every day, even if it was something as small as just learning the vocabulary word. So he he had a, a profound impact on me as a, as a young kid. What was that counselor's name? Uh, Mr. Washington. Mr. Washington? Washington. Yeah. Have you ever heard from him again today? I haven't. You know, I ran into him another time years later when I was uh, in and out of juvenile hall. I ran into him because he stopped working at Camp Scott and he was working at Central Juvenile Hall. And I was in Central Juvenile Hall one year and I saw him there. And we spoke briefly. That was that was the last time I saw him. Hmm. Yeah, yeah it's... Uh... Sounds like somebody who made an impact, like like you said, uh, ever since then, I made it a point to learn something every day. And it's probably uh, no coincidence that you went on to publish four books. Yes, I, I would. I attribute a lot of uh, what I learned from him. Uh, that gave me a lot of inspiration and, and, and it made me realize that I need to do something with my with my time and my life. And another, another counselor that was there, his name was Mr. Hill in Camp Scott. Uh, he would, uh, we would be in the dining hall after we would finish our meal and he would oftentimes give us a speech. And he would tell us, he said, look at the person sitting next to you. And everybody would look at each other and then he would, he would break it down statistically. He said, now this person that's sitting next to you, you're going to see that same person in, in the California Youth Store. 
and it was to statistically break down how many people would get out and get killed, and then yeah. give us a low number of how many people would would get out and never return to incarceration. And everything that he told us when he broke at the at the end of him giving those giving us those those that number breakdown, everything that he told us came true. Because the very uh, the majority of the people that I saw that I did time with in Camp Scott, I ran into them in the California Youth Authority. And after the California Youth Authority, a lot of people got out of the California Youth Authority and got killed at young ages. And a lot of people, the, the ones that were left, I would run into them in prison. Like you said, it was a small percentage of people that never came back. And they're out there doing good, living their lives. Do you remember any of those? Um, not offhand, but um, yeah. I hear about the people here and there. Yeah. Um, well, I know one person, well, one person that I grew up with, uh, he was in and out of incarceration, too. I don't know if you've heard of the rapper Sugar Free. Uh, I think I've heard the name before. Yeah, but he's from Pomona, so I was, I was the, the first person that he met when he arrived in Pomona. So when he arrived, I was getting into a lot of trouble. But anyway, he was in and out of camp, and he finally changed his ways, and he ended up, you know, aspiring to becoming a rap artist, and he did it, and he's he's doing doing really well. He doesn't come back to uh, confinement anymore, so he's doing really well. So that's one person that I know of. Yeah. So we're thinking about now, you mean you talked about being in a placement, Camp Scott. You mentioned one other one other place later on where you, you ran back into uh that counselor who who did have an impact on your life. And uh so take us take us, you know, through some of the the times you had leading up to your life crime. I mean your your life crime isn't until the age of uh what, thirty two years old? Well, I went to the California Youth Authority in 84. I was, you know, that was an, another experience. That was an interesting experience. <laughs> I went well, for, for some of those uh, of our listeners who don't know what uh, California Youth Authority is, uh, would you share what California Youth Authority is and what the climate was like there in 84? Well, the California Youth Authority is basically a prison for those that haven't reached the age where they can technically be charged as an adult and and go to prison. During that time, juvenile life was just seven years. So you could have committed a murder or did something very heinous, and the most you would spend in, in the California Youth Authority was up until age either 21 or 25. On your 25th birthday, they could no longer hold you. They had to let you go. But the California Youth Authority during that time, the facility that I went to was Fred C. Nellis. Now, Fred C. Nellis was, for lack of a better term, was a gladiator school. Yeah. Uh, this was... Uh, Maybe the end of the second and third generation of Crips and Bloods that were housed at this facility during this particular time. And during this time, the Crips and Bloods 
were going at it, and it was on site. You had young kids in there. All that all the we had to do was lift weights every day and go to school. You had young kids in there that were trying to make names for themselves. All they did was lift weights and uh, participate in gang activities. You had guys in there that were taking people's stuff. You had guys in there that were raping other young kids that were weren't strong enough to hold their own. And uh, it, was, it was rough. So there was a lot of fighting going on. A lot of people will tell you that in these environments, if you've been in the threats, you know this during that time in the 80s, the chances are you could fight really well. <laughs> and that's the type of climate that was existing at that time. It was, it was, it was an intense and violent climate. How did, you, how did you survive through that? How long were you there? I, I was there twice. The first time I was there for 10 months, and then I came back two months later, and then I stayed there for like two years, nine months. And, um, I, I mean, it was rough for me because I wasn't a part of the greater Los Angeles area. I was from L.A. County. And most most times, gang members from the Los Angeles area, you know, their larger gang, Pomona gangs were kind of smaller, so I had a, I, I had a lot of issues in that regard because I didn't have a lot of homeboys around me, and uh, I had to do a lot of fighting in order to, to prove who I was. Hello. Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, so, yeah, so the California Youth Authority was brutal, and uh, I had a lot of fights in there, and uh, along the way, uh, with with all the fights that I had. It started to uh, boost my notoriety, and it started to reinforce the fact that, in my mind at that time, it reinforced that violence works. I can use violence to resolve issues. So that's another warped belief system that I that I embraced, and I and I carried that mindset throughout my life up into my life crime. So you began to embrace this mindset that I can uh, make a name for myself through violence. How does that type of belief and what leads up to your life crime? What is your life crime? And let's go, let's talk about that. Well, where that mindset developed is the time that I spent in the California Youth Authority shaped and formed that mindset because the climate at that time was predicated on violence. So either you're going to fight or you're going to be a punk, period. There's no gray areas. So if somebody takes your stuff and you don't do anything, they're going to take your stuff throughout your whole stay there. So if any, the slightest form of disrespect that you perceive, you had to act on it at that time. You know, you, we were young kids trying to prove ourselves. So, and and if you didn't, you know, they, they, if you didn't, there were consequences. People taking your stuff. What could be other consequences? You would you would just be uh, ostracized the whole time that you were there, and nobody would respect you. Uh, people would arbitrarily just take whatever you had or they might even take something off of your dinner tray you could be in the dining uh, hall and eating dinner and they just arbitrarily reach over and grab your cake and right. you know in their mind you're, you're a punk anyway you, you ain't gonna do nothing 
So that was a type of atmosphere that existed at that time. Yeah. So you, you had to you had to stand up for yourself, and you had to. You may not win every fight, but you had to at least make an attempt to fight. And so uh, those were the ways that we resolved conflict, as opposed to uh, being rational about it. And uh, I, don't know, I don't know what happened there, Charles. It just all of a sudden yeah. got cut off. Yeah. Where did we leave off at? Well, you were talking about uh, the consequences of allowing yourself to be punk. So, I mean, you talked about gladiator school. I mean, they called it gladiator school pretty much because as a child, you had to become a gladiator and fight. And if you didn't, you know, it was a doggy right. dog world. Right, right. So that mindset, uh, that mindset carried on into my adulthood. And right. even when I went, went through prisons, you know, I had that same mentality. You know, if, if you offend me or anything, I would react in a violent manner. We would fight or whatever the case was. But I had to get to a point where I had to realize that uh, I have to start using my head. And I have to, I can't approach every situation in a violent manner. When did that thinking change? When did, because it's really, sometimes we talk about it like, you know, I had to get to the point where, you know, that thinking needed to change. And, and we talk about it as if it's the thinking, but it's really you. It's really you right. saying, I'm going to change my thinking. I had to think this way for a time. Or at least I thought I had to because my experience was that I might die or I might lose my life or I might lose my food. So right. what point do you come to make that shift in your life? Well, shortly after I committed my life crime, I'm in here for the uh, killing of my wife. Uh, what led up to that was a number of things. As bad as I did not want to participate in domestic-related activity because I hated my father for hitting my mother, I grew up to emulate the same behavior. And uh, I was involved with a young lady, and she later became my wife. And uh, we were both involved in criminal activities. It was just a toxic relationship on my part and her part. I didn't know who I was internally. The only way that I could deal with the emotional pain that I was that I perceived that I was being put through was to react in a violent manner. So in 19, 1997, I had just married my wife. Her name was Queenie. And I, I ended up... <clears throat> Uh, having a domestic issue with her and they charged me with spouse abuse. I got mad because she went to her son's mother's house, I mean her uh, father's family's house, and I didn't approve of that, so I got I had some jealous issues and I didn't know how to handle those feelings, so uh, I ended up hitting her. And I was charged with uh, 273.5 spouse abuse, and I was uh, given three years. And I ended up doing uh, uh, 22 months. I was sent to uh, Ironwood State Prison in uh, 1997. I got out from that. Uh, I was sent to a work furlough. That's what they called them at that time. Essentially, it was a halfway house. In 98, I was released on parole. I tried to <clears throat> patch up everything with my wife. She ended up getting pregnant. I ended up 
going back to prison on a parole violation. She ended up going to, uh, shortly after I was locked up on a parole violation, she ended up going to uh, prison herself for commercial burglary. And we were writing back and forth. My daughter was born shortly afterwards. Her uh, my, my wife's grandmother had to pick the baby up because we were both incarcerated. I ended up getting out after, I think I did a year. I did so many parole violations, it's hard to really uh, recall specifically what happened at that time. But anyway, I ended up getting out. I ended up getting another spot for you. I think it was in uh, in 2000. In 2000, I got another spouse abuse. I hit her, and she called the police on me. I was arrested. I had a board hearing, and when I got to Chino, I, I uh, devised a plan so I could beat the parole violation because I was still knee-deep in, 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 in the criminal mindset and criminal activity. So the guys that I knew on... Uh, on the yard in Chino, I had one of the guys call my wife, tell her not to show up at the board hearing. And if they did that, then by default, then they would have to uh, dismiss the charges. So that happened. They dismissed the charges for the parole violation. And then I thought that I was getting ready to go home that day. The officer came in and informed me, uh, no, you're not going home. You just got to... Uh, we got word that you have a, a, a seventy. Uh, I think it was a forty-five thousand dollar warrant uh, for your arrest. So they're putting a detainer on you, and you're going to have to go back to court. So I had to go to a higher custody and wait for uh, San Bernardino County to come pick me up to have me arraigned for those charges. I did county time, played out the county time for that, and then. Um, CDC reviolated me. I had to go to Avenal State Prison. Did that time. Got out in 2000 and uh, 2002. I can't remember the exact date, but it was in July sometime. I think it was July 24th. My wife, my mom, and my daughter come pick me up. I drive home from Avenal State Prison to back to Pomona. We drop my mom and my daughter off. I haven't been out not even four hours. My wife decides that we want to uh, drive to Los Angeles to get two ounces of cocaine. We get the cocaine. We get the cocaine. She has a. She's living in a motel at the time. She has a a young girl that's with her that she uses to sell the dope. So we give her the dope. I I purchased the cocaine because my mom has uh, got a settlement for about. $27,000 or something. So she gave me $1,000. So I used that money to purchase cocaine. So in my mind, we're going to build a, a criminal cocaine enterprise, and we're, we're going to do it. We're going to be like Bonnie and Clyde. We're in Pomona on the street called Hope. She, she has a hotel on this particular street. And the street was called what? H O L T. Okay. Uh-huh. So you got you got in a prison already for two spousal abuses on her, multiple violations, and you get out, yeah. and within four hours of being out, coming after, out of a, a uh, your term, you guys are at a motel purchasing a thousand dollars worth of cocaine. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I'm full-fledged back into criminal activity. The time that I just spent, all the hardships and everything, didn't mean nothing. Within four hours, I'm involved in criminal activity. During this course of 16 days, which that's, that's the amount of time that I stayed out before I committed this life crime, uh, she... Well, I have to I have to go back and lead you up to um, the fact that she had a baby while she was still married to me by one of one of the members from my gang at that time when I was involved in this gang activity. She had a, an adulterous affair with this individual while I was doing a parole violation. So while I'm there, a guy that knows me from my area, he says, you hey, because they used to call me Dillinger. She, she, he said, well, you know, your, your wife is out there messing with, uh, with this, this guy named Skull. So in my mind, I'm not, uh, I'm not giving it no thought. So it's, I'm thinking, you know, well, I'm in prison. That's how the game goes, you know. You know, in that criminal mindset, that's, 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 that's the thought process that we have. That's how, it, that's how it is. We're locked up, you know, you know. Our girls are going to do what they do. As long as she can come up here to visit me and, you know, send me my money, I'm fine. So after I finish the violation, I get out and I discover that she's six months pregnant. So now I'm devastated behind that, but I don't, I don't do anything. I let it go. She ends up having the baby. I can't break away from her. Even though she's done all this to me, she's, she's cheating on me. She's, uh... She hasn't been faithful in terms of the marriage vows, so, but I still accept it. I don't move on, which that was that was my critical mistake. I should have left her alone. But anyway, fast forward to uh, me getting out in 2002. We're selling the drugs. Now we're getting into arguments during this little 16-day window. So now I decide that I want to get every, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be involved in this because I know it's going to lead to me going back to prison, possibly behind me hitting her. So I don't want to do it. I decide that I want to just get my money, the money that I invested in those drugs, just give, give me that money back and I'll be on my way. I'm, uh, I had planned on uh, going to my other kid's mother and just making a life with her. That didn't pan out. So on this particular night, August 12th, no, August 13th, I made several attempts during the course of that day to go and retrieve my money from her. Uh, she kept avoiding me. So I decided that I would she have it? drink. She had it, but for whatever reason, she, she didn't want to give it to me. So... I decided during the course of this day to uh, drink a, a 40 ounce of Mickey's malt liquor. My, my system is crystal clear, so you can imagine this one bottle of beer would uh, uh, cause me to become extremely intoxicated. So once I drink that one bottle of beer, I'm feeling a nice buzz. I go get another bottle of beer. And now at this time, a thought comes into my mind that I want to kill her. So I stopped over at uh, somebody, uh, a, a friend's house that I knew, 
and I asked him to get me a butcher knife. Yeah. And he, he comes back with the butcher knife, and he, he thought that I was, he said, what are you going to do with that, cut some bud up or something? Bud meaning marijuana. Right. I said, no, I'm going to kill this beast. I used the, you know, the expletive. He said, no, don't, don't do that, don't do that. Give me that bag. I'll give you, I'll give you $5 if you give me the knife back. I didn't listen. And yeah. when you say earlier that I, I got the butcher knife because I, uh, I had the thought to kill her, why did you want to kill her? Because I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to handle the hurt. I didn't know how to handle yeah. the pain. It was a culmination of things that were just stuffed down inside of me. I'm just, I'm just giving you a brief scratch of the surface. There were a lot of other things. You know, she was having an affair with a Pomona police officer. She's a victim. She but in your mind at the time, you were. It, yeah, in my mind at the time, I was. And it, you know, and that's, that's the mindset that I had. Okay, we'll pick up right there when we come back. Okay. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. To accept this call, stay or dial 5 now. Thank you for using Global Tell Link. Welcome back, Charles. Thank you for having me back. Okay, so take us back to, you said, uh, what are your thoughts at the time? You know, you had all these ideas, beliefs, you're drinking, these distorted ideas, beliefs, domestic violence, prison, all culminating to this one moment, lending to giving you 37 years to life in prison for, I assume, first-degree murder? Second. Second degree. Second. Well, my thoughts at that time was there was just so much unresolved pain, layer upon layer, stemming all the way back from childhood. Essentially, when I saw my father hit my mother, so I had I had a layer of of pain that was stuffed deep down in inside of me regarding that and then I had uh, the, the current at that time the current domestic issues that I was dealing with the things that the infidelity that, that was taking place within that marriage all of that pain and all of those emotions were just stuffed down and then uh, it took that for me to make that choice to drink that alcohol it brought all that pain to the surface to the fore and at that time, my mind frame was, I didn't care. I didn't care about consequences at that time. But at that time, in that moment, the only thing that I wanted to do was was kill the Queen of Carpentry. Right. What are you charged with? They, they charged me with uh, one count of uh, murder. I saw with a deadly weapon with the, um, the knife, and then I ran her over three times. They, they had me with two deadly weapon charges, one with a knife and one with the car. And then he also had me charged with 273.5 because the witness said that prior, I don't remember this, I don't know if it happened or not, but prior to that, she said that I hit her. Now, I don't remember that part because I was so inebriated. But if that was... What was said, and that's what I did. I take a, I take full responsibility for everything that I've done. I'm not proud of it by no means. And I'm completely sorry for what I did. 
let's talk about that. Talk about your remorse and responsibility. Well, you know, that, that was something that was, I mean, I love that woman. She was something that was, uh, she was my wife. I mean, that was, uh, after I got arrested, after I was sober, uh, you know, I cried like a baby, you know, uh, just realizing what had taken place, what I was charged with. What you had done. What I had done, it was devastating. It was, it was, it was devastating. I couldn't believe that I had got to a point in my life that I was even capable of doing something like that. I, 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 I just, I just went through a lot of mental ups and downs, you know, for the first year of my incarceration. This was a person that, that I vowed to spend the rest of my life with, and I just inflicted uh, so much pain on her, and it was emotionally devastating to me. Even even now, um, I can't really talk about it without crying or tearing up. We we share a, a daughter together. My daughter is is 20 years old now, and. Uh, is she in your life? No, she she contacted me uh, in 2015 out of out of the blue. I just got a letter from her. She was three years old when it happened, so uh, according to her, uh, she she had no recollection of who I am. She wrote me a letter, and um, the way she found out about where I was was through my book. So she uh, discovered the book somehow, I don't know, I guess on Google or the internet or whatever, but uh, she contacted me when I was in Ironwood and uh, she was initially venting, which is understandable. And uh, uh, we, we developed a brief correspondence after that first letter and I haven't heard anything from her since. But um, as far as my sentencing, when I, when I went to sentencing, the family was there. Her family, my family was there. They give the her family the opportunity to say something to me in court, and um, uh, it was it was, um, it was a devastating situation to sit to. Number one, I felt terribly bad about what I did, and um, just to hear the damage that I caused to her family and, you know, to her mother. You know, she made a statement. She said, now my grandkids has to have to see their mother through pictures. And when she said that, you know, I broke down and I, and I cried right there in open court. You know, it was just, it was just a, hard, a hard period of my life. And um, I, I, I completely regret that, you know, I, that that shouldn't have happened. That should not have happened. What should not have happened? The whole the whole crime that I committed, that should not have happened. I, I should not have done that. I had other options. I could have left and uh, I let my emotions and my, the feelings that I, that I had inside of me 
overwhelmed me, and I didn't I didn't know how to handle them at the time. Not justifying what I did because it can never be justified because her life was lost. But the feelings that I had at the time that is what triggered my behavior. What are your thoughts about what you did today? I live with it every day. I'm still struggling with it every day, and it's um, it's it's a challenge. I've I've asked God to forgive me. I think about you know the negative effects that I've caused everybody. My family, everybody was 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 hurt behind it. Everybody suffered behind it. Especially, not only my wife, the injuries that I I caused her, but my my child. She's damaged. She didn't have the opportunity to grow up with either of her of her parents. And I wish that I could I could I could take it back. I I know I can't change it, but the only thing that I can do moving forward is be the best me that I can be and try to be a voice to someone that's traveling down a similar path in hopes that they don't make the same foolish choices that I've made. So take me to the moment when the judge says, Charles Carpenter, I'm sentencing you to 37 years to life. What was going through your mind at that time? At, at that time, um, I felt like, you know, life was over. I felt that I was going to die in prison. I was going to grow into an old man in prison and eventually expire. I didn't see, uh, at that time, I didn't see any light at the end of the tunnel. It was, I mean, prison was just... That was it. There was no comma after prison. There was no continuance. It was just prison, period. Do you believe that you deserve that amount of time? Of course. Of course I believe I deserve that amount of time. You know, a human life, you can't even place a price tag or, or measure it in terms of what is the appropriate punishment for someone losing their life and me being the cause of it. So I, I completely deserve it. How long have you been in now? 17 years. 17 years. Uh, yeah. What prisons have you been doing that time? I started off, uh, I went to Delano for reception and then I was uh, transferred to New Folsom. I did about four years, nine months, close to five years there. And then I was transferred to Ironwood in 2008, and I did seven years there, and then I was transferred here. What's it been like for you in prison these last 17 years? Oh, it's been um, it's been rough. It's been rough. I mean, I would attribute my survival to my religious foundation. Other than that. I would not be able to mentally endure this environment. This, I mean, especially when I went to New Folsom, I had never been to a maximum security prison uh, throughout all the time that I've done. So they sent me to New Folsom, and during that time, the facility was a shoe kickout yard. Shoe meaning segregated housing units, people that were 
and other prisons that were sent there for disciplinary reasons. The SHU was basically a prison within a prison. And so you had these people, these guys that were uh, documented prison gang members and uh, other disruptive street gang members that were uh, behavior problems at other prisons. So they were all on this one particular yard. And so you can imagine the type of environment that existed on that yard. So it was a, 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 an extremely violent yard. I had never seen anything like it in my life. What are some of the things that take place? Are you talking about a 180? Yes, 180. What is a 180 and what type of things are you experiencing there that you said you can imagine? Well, I can imagine being somebody who's formerly incarcerated myself with a life term. But what about those who, who can't imagine it because they've never been there? Their loved one is there. And definitely, as you said, you, you, you share yourself that you deserve to be there. But absolutely, different people have different ideas of what prison is like. They think that you got to be in a cell and maybe you got a TV and you're going to go to school every day. But they also don't know the other side of it, of what prison is really like once you get there. So what, 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 are, what is going on in these 182 kickout level four yards? Well, New Folsom during that time was basically the end of the prison line. I mean, there were, there are other facility, facilities uh, that are, are, are akin to New Folsom, but those type of facilities are basically the end of the line. You have people that are sentenced to life without the possibility of parole, meaning that they will never see free society ever again. So with this type of... With these people in these facilities, with this type of mindset, the mindset that I am never going home, this makes for a violent prison environment. You have people that are participating in gangs that are trying to control different areas of the prison or trying to control the drug trade. You have people that are using drugs, getting drunk, using heroin. It's just a it's just a powder keg of chaos. I've witnessed one person on the yard get killed. I actually saw him during his last moments of life, and it was uh, it was not a, a pleasant experience. Would you be willing to share that story? Well, uh, this one particular day. I was out there on the yard, and um, the yard went down. So when the yard goes down uh, at New Folsom, the alarm sounds, and then uh, the tower officer, she says in a loud voice, down, down. The next thing I, I, I look around, because it's customary before you sit down to look around, to scan the environment to make sure that you're not in danger before you get down. So when I look over to the... To the area where people were working out, I saw two white inmates. One white inmate was chasing another white inmate. I hear the tower officer say, get down. And next thing I know, I hear shots fire off. And uh, I was looking at everything as it was unfolding. When the tower officer shot the guy that was chasing the other guy with the knife, he shot him in the back area and he immediately fell down and fell backwards. 
They came and immediately put him on the gurney. They rode him on the gurney to where I was sitting by the program office. A couple hours later, when we watched the news, they said that he died when he was being transported to the hospital. And he was only, he had just gotten there from Solano. I think he had just gotten out of the shoe. He only had five years left to do, and he ended up losing his life. I think this was during the time uh, that uh, California Department of Corrections was, they were just about to incorporate the rehabilitation to the name. So prior to that, in these type of environments, these level four 180s, when you had, when you had these individuals in this environment, they were in a state of hopelessness. When you have no hope, that's a, that's a dangerous mix. When you do not give a person hope or you do not give a person a way out, they don't value their lives, nor do they value the next man's life. And those are the type of environments that uh, level four 180s consist of. So how do you how do you make it out of the level four? Well, shortly after I was sentenced, I started to make some changes. I started to uh, study the Bible. The first thing that I did was I backed away from that gang lifestyle. I was adamant about people calling me by my nickname. I told them, look, do not call me Dillinger. Call me Charles. So that was the first step that I took towards change. Because I believe that if a person is still going by his old street name, then you're still trying to live up to what that name entails. And you're still involved in criminal activity or you're still involved in that lifestyle that led you to be incarcerated. So the first change that I had to make was to eliminate the nickname. And then I started to become deeply involved in religious activities. I started to read my Bible and I started to understand that that God does care for us and that he is forgiving and that he is compassionate. One of the things that he requires in order for us to gain his approval is that we change our personality. I don't know if you know about the Bible or not, but uh, in some areas of the Bible, there are people that live a debauched lifestyle and they changed who they were. They changed their personality and they were accepted by God. The Apostle Paul is one of them. So, you know, I started making those type of changes and then then I, I started making it a point to associate with like-minded people because I believe that bad association spoils useful habits as the Bible mentions. So you talk so you I, talk to the former gang members or other people and you let them know, hey, don't call me by my nickname no more. And what were some of the responses you got from that? Well, uh, it was met with some resistance. When I, when I got to New Folsom, I thought that I was going to have a little situation, but it, it ended up, uh, thanks to God, it, everything panned out. Uh, I was on the yard one day, and some guys that I know from my old neighborhood, they approached me. And I, I was just coming off of the uh, CTQ situation where um, I had just been classified and I was just coming out to the yard for the first time. 
What is CTQ? And, uh, so I, uh, confined to quarters. That, that basically means that you cannot come out and mingle with the general population until you go to a committee. They determine your program needs and they determine if you have any enemies or anything on the yard before they let you out uh, on the general population yard. So after I went through that process, I saw a few guys that were from my old neighborhood and I, I made it clear to them that uh, you know, I'm no longer a part of the, the gang lifestyle. And um, I would prefer that they did not call me by my nickname, that I, I would prefer that they called me by Charles. And one individual that I, that I had known for a number of years, he posed a question to me. And he said, so, so suppose we're out here on the yard and one of the homies gets into it. What's your position? Uh, I said, well, you know, I, I can't do it. I'm not a part of that lifestyle. I can't do it. I had to, I had to say a quick prayer because was I scared? Yes. <laughs> I said a prayer and um, asked God to protect me and guide me and give me the right words to say. So he said, uh, okay. He tried to rephrase the question. He said, okay, you like family to me. So what's your position if we're out here on the yard and one of your family members gets into it? <laughs> so he tried to trip me up by playing on words. So I, I, I restated my position. And, uh, and I was firm on it. And uh, I relied completely on God. And everything worked out. And I'm here to talk to you about it. <laughs> In fact, I set, I set such a good example for them that eventually they started following my pattern in, in going to religious services with me. Okay. Just based on, just based on the fact that I was serious about my change, and they saw that, and they respected it. So you eventually make it out of the level four and and now you make it to you're at Soledad. Yeah. So let's talk some more about your transformation now. Like we know that you publish books, but in your thinking, in your believing, in your actions, how are you a new man today? Why is that important to you? Just speak to how your transformation process took place. I, I credit my transformation to relying on God and reading the Bible because the Bible outlines everything that we need to know in order to change who we are. Um, I believe that the key component is to change into who I am or who I was as a person is to cultivate love. Love is the first quality that I had to cultivate. I had to start caring for other people because everything, looking back on my life, everything that I did, which landed me in and out of incarceration, was predicated on selfishness. I was a completely selfish individual. I didn't care about anyone else's feelings but mine. So one of the first things that I had to do was to take inventory of myself and develop that trait of love. And under that umbrella of love comes compassion and empathy. I put myself in a, another person's shoes. How would I feel if somebody did that to me? The crime that I committed, how would I feel if somebody did that to me? How would you feel? I wouldn't like it. It, 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 it would be terrible. Right. It, it's, it, it's, I mean, it's 
Worse can't even describe the pain. So I would now I place myself in other people's shoes and I show compassion now. And I try to live by those principles. Not just talk about it, but I try to live by those principles. Am I perfect? No. But participating in violence and gang activity and drug use, those are three things that I will never do. Ever again. Do you read the Bible every day now? Yes, I do. It sounds to me that you learned a new system of believing and you didn't know what, maybe you had a distorted view of what love was before. I mean, obviously from what you shared and you adopted or chose to adopt what the Bible teaches about love, compassion, empathy, giving, selflessness. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's uh, that's the example that I try to set. I don't, like I said, I can talk about it, but these principles have to be sounded into my heart. And when these principles become sounded into my heart, it manifests itself through my speech and my conduct. So I see people around here all all the time, and people say that they've changed, but then when I listen to them speak. They're still talking about gang activity. They're still talking about drugs or who has a pruno or whatever. So the change is not rooted into their heart because what's coming out of their mouth doesn't coincide with what they're, they're professing to be. So I try to live what I profess to be through my conduct. You remind me of a, a statement Jesus made at one time when he said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Absolutely. Absolutely. Was there a particular aha moment for you where you, you sit in your cell one day and you're saying enough is enough from this day forward? Was there a day or did for some people it's a day? You talked about the Apostle Paul. He had that on the road to Damascus event and where Jesus appeared to him. Was Did you have an event like that or was your transformation more of a gradual process? No, actually, it was like I just woke up one day and said, you know what, I'm, I'm done with this. I'm, I'm done with this, this gang stuff because I'm not, it's not benefiting me any, in any kind of way. I'm paying a high price for being a part of this, and I'm not benefiting in any way. So there was actually just, I just woke up one day and said, you know what, I'm, I'm done. I am done. And then from there, I started making small incremental steps towards change. And, and before I know it, the old me is so far behind me that I can't even, I can't even see uh, who I was. So now I'm, you know, in my mind, I mean, you know, like I said, I'm not perfect. I still have, we're all imperfect and I still have other areas that I need to work on, but the specific areas that, uh, that led me to become incarcerated for the past 37 years of my life, I will not, I will never participate in those activities ever again. That's great, Charles. I'm glad that you said that. When was the last time you participated in any type of violence or drugs, criminal activity like that? The initial part of my time, the first year I got into one fight in the county jail. And uh, I was taken to the hole. Uh, that was in 2000, somewhere in 2002, early 2003, as far as 
violence other other than that and throughout my prison stay I haven't participated in any violence. Uh I have received one uh, RVR rule violation report in twenty fifteen for possession of a, a cell phone. Okay. What was uh your worst moment in prison? The worst moment in prison was the, the day well, I was in the county jail because I was going to say the day after I woke up and realized what I did, that was one of the worst times. But I would I would say the worst moment in prison was when I had I had a particular cellie at the time in New Folsom, and he was uh, he was involved in a lot of the prison politics, and I I couldn't see any way out at the time. I didn't have another option to move with someone else. So, but I prayed on it, and uh, things worked out in my favor. I, I had complete faith in God and everything worked out in my favor, but initially that was my worst time in prison, my worst moment. It changed for me. I should have done this long ago. I mean, this is the, I am the person that I should have been long ago. I mean, it feels good not to, first of all, to be able to in these environments, to be able to stand on my own two feet and to be able to make my own decisions as a man and not be concerned with what the next man thinks about me, it feels good. I'd like to be an example to other people because there are people on this very yard and on other yards that I've been to that know me from the California Youth Authority and other prisons, and I'm encouragement to them. So it feels good to be able to, for once in my life, not be selfless, but selfless, and to help other people through my example. That's great, Charles. Yeah. Because a lot of people, you know, they take the position or, or you know, I know, I've been knowing this guy. I knew how he was before. And if he can do it, I can do it. So, you know, it's, it's sort of like a, a lead by example type of thing. Right. I have a couple more questions for you. Try to give uh, your answers within two minutes each. Okay. Okay. So it's sort of an exercise in uh, discipline. But at the same time, if there's more needs to be said, feel free to take your time. But okay. So one of them was explain how your crime and incarceration has impacted the people that you love the most. Mm-hmm. Well, first and foremost, it has impacted my mother dramatically. Okay. Every mother would like for their, their child to be in free society to help them out as they advance in age. You know, my mother is heartbroken. My mother, my mother probably, I'm sure she, she goes through uh, different questions that she poses to herself. And, and I think one of the questions that she asked herself is, where did I go wrong? You know, she did the best that she could. At the end of the day, my brother and myself, we made the decision to do what we did. And with my children, my children are impacted dramatically. They don't have their parents. I have a daughter by another lady, and she has a resentment towards me, and it stems from my absence, my making the decision not to be in her life. Because at the end of the day, I made the decision to be here. I chose to be here based on my selfishness. So I impacted, I impacted everybody that loves me. You know, if they say they love me and I'm not living up to my end of the bargain, how am I expressing love to them? 
by being here, being away from them. I have so much to offer as, a, as an individual, as a human being right now. That's, that's doing them a disservice because I'm not there. Love is a verb. Love is an action word. So people can say out of their mouth that they love somebody, but love is expressed through action. So I would say that uh, my crime has impacted uh, people on a number of levels, a, a number of uh, negative levels, emotionally, psychologically. And what about for the woman you murdered? What, what about her for her family? Same, same applies to her. They're, they're devastated. They didn't get a chance to see their daughter or their sister, their niece, their cousin. They, she has so much potential, and uh, it, it can never be realized. It can never be brought to fruition. She lost her life. She had the opportunity to become whatever she wanted to do. I didn't have the right to take that, and so that is, that has impacted them dramatically. Have you made any efforts at uh, making amends? I I have. I've I've made attempts to uh, to write letters to my victim's family. Uh, I've done that in um, I think it was 2004, and her grandmother called up to the prison and. and, and and uh, next thing I know, the squire was talking to me, and they told me that uh, I wasn't to have any contact with her. And uh, if I contact her, contacted her again, that uh, I would be placed in the shoe for 18 months. But uh, as of late, I haven't. I need to start writing uh, remorse letters to get them put into my C file. Yeah. Well, I guess uh, the proper way of doing that. It used to be there was a. Uh, a place that you could send uh, letters of remorse to. But I think the way they do it nowadays is a person would be required to send a letter of remorse to a district attorney in that county. And the district attorney will inf inform the family members that you have written a letter and if, and if they choose to read it or want it, then they would give it to them. But you have to go in between so that you don't contact them and get in trouble. Okay. Yeah. I read that you wrote uh, that your mission is to share your story, a virtue of writing books. You said that today I've written and published four books. My books, I share my firsthand experience with the outcome of gangs, criminal activity, and my overall poor choices. I'm an expert in my own experience. Therefore, I have valuable information that I could share with someone traveling down the wrong path. Do you remember writing that? Yes, I do. What are, what, are, what are the names of your books, and, and uh, when did that start for you to, you, where you made a decision, I want to write books to, I like that line, I'm an expert in my own experience. Well, my first book uh, was written in 2003. It's an autobiography. The title of it is Handcuffed. And everything that we've been discussing, but in deeper detail, is outlined in my book, Handcuffed, all the way up to, to the life crime, my gang involvement, everything. My second book is uh, called Colors of Oppression. And uh, Colors of Oppression, uh, I was inspired to write Colors of Oppression because 
I had a, a situation where uh, I auditioned to speak at a TEDx event in 2014 in Ironwood. I went through all the auditions and everybody said I had a great speech and these inmates were on a panel and they were uh, tasked with the opportunity to select people to speak. Long story short, I was politicked out and uh, that, would, that inspired me to write Colors of Oppression because in my opinion, Colors of Oppression doesn't just, it's not black and white, it comes oppression or people that don't like you because you're trying to achieve a measure of success or taking steps to achieve success. They can come up in all forms, all colors, all shapes, sizes, everything. So that's what Colors of Oppression is about. Uh, it's about the different uh, dynamics that I've, I've witnessed in prison and the different things to look for in, in order to survive in these environments. And uh, then I have a book called uh, Contradictions, the Unveiling of the Mask. Yeah, Contradiction is about uh, the steps that I took to step away from the gang culture. We talked about earlier about how uh, in my attempt to be accepted by this group, I was participating in things that... Um, that really wasn't who I was. So in the process, I lost my identity and uh, I masked it. We talked about nicknames earlier. So that's why one of the first steps that I had to take was to remove the nickname because I believe that if you're trying to live up to a nickname, then your, your conduct is going to reflect what that nickname entails. So contradiction is about taking off that mask and dealing with your true self. And then my fourth book is called uh, the making of a diamond. So the making of a diamond, when you think about a diamond, a diamond starts off as a worthless piece of coal until it goes through a refining process of heat and pressure. And it's only after that, that time that you can appreciate that priceless value of that gem, the diamond, the end result. So the making of a diamond is basically a metaphor for my life. Because um, I started off, I didn't realize that I had value, but the, the value was within me all the time. It just had to be cultivated or I had to go through the refining process in order to, for me to realize my true value. Then I have another book that's going to be uh, released um, any day. It's probably within the next 30 days. It's called The Anatomy of Urban Genocide. Yeah, so The Anatomy of Urban Genocide is about people in position of, of power and wealth creating conditions which ultimately lead to urban genocide. You know, well, the urban genocide represents the, the people that are economically challenged and they're, they're strategically put in certain segments of society and they're economically locked out of or marginalized and prevented from achieving privileges and, and, and positions in our society. And I think a lot of it is by design. I have a, ch a chapter in my book called The Solidad Scandal. I'm not sure if you've heard of uh, the, the recent events that have been taking place within the last year and a half here at Solidad State Prison. But I have. a lot of that stuff, yeah, a lot of that stuff is uh, strategically designed and created. A lot of it was uh, a blind eye was turned to uh, a lot of that stuff that was taking place. And uh, I'm, I'm going to talk about it and the general public will know about it. 
That's good. That's good. And I think in our next call, I mean, if if you, uh, how how can your books be purchased? They're available on Amazon. Okay. You can go on Amazon and look up uh, with the names of the book uh, by Charles Carpenter, and they'll, they'll come up. Okay. What type of positive things are you involved in today? I mean, obviously, it takes a lot to write a book. Also, what are what are some other things that you're doing in there to help others? Well, one of the things, the most important thing that I'm doing right now is uh, involved in my religion. Uh, I don't know if you uh, you said you have read the Bible. A lot of things that are taking place right now indicate that we are in the last days. So my my focal point now is to share that message that the Bible outlines with others in an attempt to help them to change before it's too late. So that's one of the things that I'm doing right now. I'm also involved in a number of groups. I'm involved in a, a group called Defy Ventures, and I'm also involved in Toastmasters, which is a speaking club. All right. That's great, Charles. Keep it up, man. Keep up the good work. You know, our listeners are those who have a loved one who's incarcerated. So we think about them on their way to go visit their, their brother, their son, their grandson, their husband, their wife, their sister, and they're hearing your story. And maybe their loved one hasn't made that transition yet. Maybe they haven't, haven't uh, entered groups yet or began to read the Bible and considered a, a new value system or what's talked about in the Bible is transformation and renewing your mind and and love God with all your heart and with all your mind, with all your soul and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself, the two greatest commandments. So maybe they haven't heard that before, or maybe they're not open to that. What would be your advice or what could be some final words that you could share with our listeners that they could encourage their loved ones to get on that path to change? Well, I would say that, uh, you know, as you mentioned, not everyone is interested in the Bible and doing the things that that I have done to uh, facilitate my change. What I would uh, suggest is that whatever a person is involved in, ask yourself these questions. What are the benefits of me participating in this activity? And what are the costs? So if the costs outweigh the benefits, stop doing it. Period. It's simple. If you have to pay the price more than what you're benefiting from what you're doing, you need to stop doing it. You need to step away from it and make some changes because it's not working. No, it's not. So the other question is, is for you, it sounds like it was something that you did early on. I mean, even uh, in the new Folsom days in level four. Uh-huh. What about for that person yeah. whose loved one is still gangbanging or using drugs? What's your message to them? Well, I would say, that, you know, there is a point where you can you can no longer get any higher. There is a point where if you're involved in gangs, there is a point where there's nothing more that you can do. There's nothing left. For me, I've done everything that in that lifestyle. And there comes a point where the, the, the cup is overflowing. What, what, what more can I do? You know, once a person reaches that mind state or that point in his life, then change, change will happen on its own. It's just like, uh, I'll use this analogy. If a person, a young kid plays with fire, 
and he happens to burn 80% of his body in a house fire, but the young kid recovers. What do you think the chances of that young kid ever playing with fire is? Probably very. Yeah. <laughs> so, a lot of times, traumatic events happen in our lives, in our lives that cause us to change. And a lot of times, we don't. No one even has to to prompt us to change, or we don't have to go to a group to change. We just feel that pain. And we we say no, I don't I don't, don't want to touch that no more. That's that's not working for me. But you know, some people have to get to that point. But I think the best way to learn is from listening to counsel. That was my problem. I didn't want to listen to counsel. Everybody told me, stop doing that. This is what's going to happen to you. I thought I could do it a different way and have a different outcome. The outcome's going to be the same. Here I am stuck in prison. I'm fortunate that I'm alive to even talk to you, to be honest with you. Right. You know, because there's a lot of people that, that live the same lifestyle that I live, and they're not here to talk about it. They're dead. So I'm very thankful that I'm alive and breathing, even though I'm in an unfortunate, a self-imposed situation that I put myself in based on the, the choice that I made. And I'm thankful that I have another opportunity uh, moving forward to make things better. I'm glad that you were able to, to call today. It's uh, It's been a blessing to be able to have this interview with you, to be able to give our listeners a glimpse into uh, what your life was like, what it was like for you growing up, what you experienced in the greater Los Angeles area and Pomona. I think it's a common experience uh, for most of us with our fathers around and your experience there. I would like to ask a couple more questions. What were your ideas of manhood growing up? And what are your ideas of what it means to be a man today? My ideas of, growing, uh, of manhood growing up was being that uh, my mind frame was tainted by the gang culture. It was just being the... You know, being an OG, you know, being uh, being somebody that's, that's a, a big time drug dealer, or you know, not necessarily educated, but just being able to hustle and, and acquire a lot of wealth through illegal means. That was my idea of what a man was, or being able to fight, being able to to fight really well. You know, but you know, today, you know, that's no longer the image of what I think a man is. A man. Is, is responsible. A man keeps his word. A man lives up to his commitment. A man is a thinker. A little kid can fight. A little kid can. That, that's what little kids do. They don't have the tools to to be able to reason with each other. So if, if one kid wants a toy from another kid, the first thing that they do is try to hit him and take it from him because they don't have the skill set to communicate. So as a man, a man is a thinker. A man thinks, thinks things through before he acts. He thinks it's the best possible outcome. That's what a man is. Thank you, Charles. I've uh, enjoyed this interview. And you mentioned one thing about your last book being about what's going on there in Soledad. Would you be willing to summarize? I think we have about 10 more minutes. Would you, you know, take five minutes or so and, and tell us about what, what the atmosphere is like there in Soledad? The atmosphere right now is kind of, uh, it's kind of topsy-turvy. 
I would I would say uh, I don't know if you know, but they had some uh, individuals that were part of a prison gang were uh, brought here about a year and a half ago, and uh, being that they were involved in that structure. They turned this place upside down, literally. A lot of things that were taking place in this facility that I have not seen in the history of me doing time. You mean good things? I, not, not, no, bad things in, in terms of uh, prison gang culture that was brought to this facility. It created a lot of racial divides. Uh, prior to that, this place was a peaceful programming yard. This was a yard where you would uh, come to to uh, make that transition to go back into society. I mean, you had a few incidents here and there, but not on a large-scale riot. That hasn't happened in this facility in years. And uh, all of a sudden, as soon as uh, these individuals came to this facility, the culture changed. The administration knew about it. I don't know what their position was about it, but from the outward appearance, they condone a lot of the activity that was taking place. Have there been riots there? Yes. There's been uh, at least three riots. Uh, they were doing some, some more, what, what people were calling uh, stage fights. A lot of other things that uh, we don't have time to discuss during this interview. <laughs> but uh, I will tell you this, that everything that I saw will be outlined in my, my latest book, The Anatomy of Urban Genocide. All right. Your story's been insightful. I really believe that it's going to add value to a multitude of people, Charles. So I just want to thank you. I still want to say that uh, on behalf of myself and our audience, we're grateful for your interview. And uh, I'll be able to get back to you when, I, when our episodes are launched and let you know uh, when it's going to be coming out. For the family and friends that you have, if you'd like to hear the interview, uh, I'll be able to let you know when it comes out so you could uh, see that. Okay. They could see well, that. I appreciate you giving me this opportunity, man, to share my story. Yeah. I want to thank you for that. You know, I want to thank you for your time. Is there anything else that you'd like to share? No, other than, uh, you know, I, I, I wish you the best. And uh, I think what you're doing is uh, uh, something that's uh, to be applauded. You're, you're setting a great example for those of us that are still here. You're paving the way for us, for people that are are ultimately trying to secure their freedom. So I think you're doing a great job, and I want to commend you for that. Yeah, I appreciate that, Charles. I know what it's like to be there in Soledad. Uh, I was there through some of the riots, and I know what's going on there. And I just want you to know, man, that there are many, many hundreds uh, of lifers who are getting out. They're getting out, and they're not going back. They're immersing themselves in positive, positive things. Uh, all the way from the state capital influencing laws to being on boards to working for uh, a multitude of different jobs for different companies. They're getting married. They're being productive citizens. So gone are the days of the recidivism rates being high for the long-term offender. Guys are getting out. They're doing the right thing. And they're being positive members of society. Keep on, keep on that path that you're on, bro. I want to encourage you. Stay on that path because... It may not be a tomorrow, but different laws are changing. And at one time, maybe that would have meant your your sentence would have meant being in there forever. But it doesn't mean that anymore today. 
stay on that path that you're on, taking complete and full and complete responsibility for what you did and for what you caused, being an open book, transparent, willing to talk about it with remorse, contrition, and accountability, you can have the opportunity to come out here. I know guys who have gotten out in their, their 30s and guys who have gotten out in their 60s, and they're equally having a wonderful time and enjoying life. And I'd like to see the same for you. Thank you, man. I appreciate you. Thank you for listening to The Prison Post, a production of the Crop Organization. We'll be sharing more stories from the world of prison reform and restorative justice, so please join us. You can listen to The Prison Post on all major podcasting platforms. Subscribe to our videocast on YouTube and like us on Facebook at The Prison Post and at Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs.